Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. We can sometimes forget that India, or the idea of a single unified entity, is not a very old concept. Indian history is complicated and convoluted. Different societies, polities, and cultures rise and fall, ebb and flow, as the political makeup of South Asia changes. Namit Arora, author of Indians, A Brief History of a Civilization, details some of these change in cultures. From the early Harappans, to the Buddhist centers of Nagarjunakonda and Nalanda, and ending at Varanasi, Aurora takes his readers on a journey through South Asia's rich and diverse history. Namit Aurora chose a life of reading and writing after cutting short his career in the internet industry. Raised in the Hindi belt of India, he lived in Louisiana, the San Francisco Bay Area, and Western Europe, and traveled in scores of countries before returning to India over two decades later in 2013. He is also the author of The Lottery of Birth, a collection of essays, and the novel Love and Loathing in Silicon Valley. Today, Namna and I will talk about the many different cultures featured in his book, Indians. We'll share the stories of some of India's illustrious foreign visitors and what it was like for Namit to research these lost histories. So, Namit, thank you so much for joining me on the Asian Review of Books podcast. Um, perhaps it's best to start with a big picture view of Indians, a Brief History of a Civilization, which itself is a is a very grand title. Um, what's the span of history that you cover in this book? And what are some of the major places you discuss? Great. Uh, first of all, thank you, Nicholas, for inviting me. I'm uh, very glad to be here. Um, I begin this book with the Harappan civilization, which arose in the early 3rd millennium BCE, And I end the book in our own day. So the time span is uh, nearly 5,000 years. For the book, I visited six major historical sites whose memory was entirely or substantially lost to us. And we know about them through archaeology. These are Dholavira, Nagarjunakonda, Nalanda, Khajuraho, Vijayanagar, and Varanasi. I describe what these lost worlds were like at their prime. And alongside, I also present the impressions of some of the most famous foreign travelers who visited India. So what's the mainstream narrative for India's history, at least in India? And how does this mainstream narrative stray from the actual history of South Asia? Mm. Well, I think the mainstream narrative in Indian history as um, probably everywhere else, is the narrative of the dominant class and its ideology, which then also reveals how it strays from actual history, as in 
what it ends up including and excluding. So if we look at the modern period, I see two or three mainstream narratives for Indian history that that follow each other. So, you know, it starts out with uh, colonial historiography, which the British forge in alliance with Indian native informants who happen to be all upper caste Hindus. Not surprisingly, this very influential template of Indian history emphasizes only a small part of the Indian story, which is centered on Brahminical society and its texts. And this narrative has shaped Hindu self-knowledge profoundly. On the one hand, it uh, devalues the extraordinary or ignores the extraordinary range and diversity of Indian social, religious, and cultural life. And on the other, it denigrates the centuries of Muslim rule in India, largely to justify their supposedly more humane and rational colonial rule. A nice little trick there. So that's the first mainstream narrative. And it's notable that key aspects of it live on in the current Hindu nationalist conception of Indian history. And I'll come to that in a minute. Then in the 20th century, many Indian scholars, you know, all fired up by this anti-colonial sentiment and secular nationalism, they start writing Indian history. And a new mainstream now emerges. You know, sometimes we call it the Marxist school, though I often think this is a misnomer. Um, I, I mean, they didn't, the, these authors didn't quite have similar ideas about Marxism. And while it was progressive in terms of class and religious inclusion, it was still very upper caste in its biases and blind spots. Um, it really focused on caste as a central organizing principle of Indian society and its corrosive impact on uh, social and cultural life. Now, a third mainstream is emerging lately, um, which uh, is the Hindu nationalist or the Hindutva narrative, which imagines India as a Hindu nation and it interprets past events to favor one imagined community of this uh, nation. Uh, It elevates the history of upper caste Hindus at the expense of other people's histories. It's chauvinistic. It habitually relies on dubious evidence and arguments, and it's about honing majoritarian pride. And this Hindutva conception of history is now pretty common, I would say, in the Indian academy and in major cultural institutions. And it has the full and aggressive support from the ruling party, uh, which also now represents this dominant ideology. So this third mainstream, uh, if you will, is the one to reckon with uh, in the near future, I think. And, you know, it's an, it's probably clear from your answer that that you think this narrative is is incorrect. From your research and writing your book, where do you think um, this current mainstream strays from what India's history was actually like? Well, in the in the same way, like uh, you know, in many of the same ways that uh, that applied to the the first version of the colon- uh, the colonial narrative, which is that 
it is very much centered on Hindus. On uh, it neglects the experiences of a large number of other communities, and this is it's centered on uh, an upper caste narrative, and it uh, it has devalued all kinds of past traditions and peoples and you know their their cultures. And so, you know, that's it. In many ways, it's the same, and it is virulently anti-Muslim. And so, you know, there is a large parts of the uh, of the Indian experience that it uh, that it overlooks. So, I'd like to start now, kind of talking about some of the cultures and cities um, you bring up in your book, and let's maybe start at the very beginning, um, the Harappans. So, in short. Who were the Harappans? And, you know, this is the oldest society you profile in the book. And what place do they have in kind of as you chart India's long history? Hmm. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very fond of the Harappans, so I'm always happy to talk about them. Uh, the Harappans were the people who built the Harappan civilization or the Indus Valley civilization, which uh, came up in what is now Pakistan and Western India. It was contemporary to the ancient Mesopotamian and Egyptian civilizations and was larger than each of them, both in terms of population and territory. Um, And its mature period was from 2600 BCE to 1900 BCE. So they flourished for about um, 700 years. The Harappans built uh, the first cities in the Indian subcontinent. Uh, the first of these was discovered in uh, 1925, and since then, over a thousand Harappan settlements have been identified. And most of these are tiny hamlets, a few small towns, and five large cities, of which three are in uh, modern Pakistan and two in uh, modern India. In the book, I visit Dholavira, um, the best excavated Harappan city in India. And it's, it's really an amazing place to wander through. You still find you know, fragments of Harappan pottery and bangles and jewelry lying on the ground. And uh, you can, you know, uh, and, and a whole bunch of other things, uh, various types of stones, which are etched with the sort of games they played and wonderful stuff. And the Harappans are, of course, uh, now the overall civilization. They're, of course, famous for their urban planning water management, citywide drainage systems. They built the first indoor toilets in the world. And uh, in in water engineering, their achievements weren't exceeded for 2,000 years until the Romans. In Dholavira, which is uh, was also back then in an arid region, they built amazing water harvesting systems and 16 giant reservoirs. One of these is nine times larger than an Olympic-sized pool. And so, I mean, the the Harappans actually come across to me as really good civil engineers. Uh, uh, They also happen to be a seagoing people and traded as far as the Persian Gulf. And, you know, so these are all various types of material achievements. Um, It was, in some ways, though, it was also a very unusual civilization in that it was substantially egalitarian. So, you know, um, archaeologists haven't found any palaces um, like the sort you see in, in Egypt. 
their homes are very similar size. So the gap between the size from the upper crust to the lower class is actually they're quite similar, just a little larger, little smaller. They had substantial nutritional equality, and they can find this out today by doing skeletal analysis. Um, and then their burial goods are also very similar. So the gaps there are uh, small. Um, another unusual feature is that they apparently had no temples. Uh, none have been found or evidence of a priestly class. There is no evidence of war in their art, nor have weapons of war been found. And so that that's, makes it really quite uh, unusual. They, they also worshipped mother goddesses who had, you know, the, the uh, you know, with these wide hips and big breasts, the kind that would become prominent in later Indian art. And, you know, several of their seals depict people in yogic and meditative postures. And in one seal, you know, sitting under a, a Bodhi tree, very intriguing stuff. And um, they had a linguistic script, but Sadly, it's still undeciphered, so a whole bunch of information is locked away. And this civilization declined around 1900 BCE, and the leading explanation is, you know, regional climate change. So the local monsoon patterns changed, the rains dried up, agriculture became unviable, causing a steady population exodus from the cities and migrations to the south. And, you know, there's good reason to believe that the Harappans spoke a proto-Dravidian language, uh, which they, of course, took to the south. In fact, they have a close genetic proximity to modern South Indians. And so, you know, so that's that's the Harappans. And it's it's interesting you mentioned kind of the, the things that are unusual about the Harappans because um, you kind of know what is it, the, 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 the standard narrative of how civilizations develop is um, they become agricultural, but then agriculture brings inequality and yes. ca- cla- like you know elite classes, administrators, priests, and it seems like the Harappans are the exception to a pattern we've seen in lots of other um, early civilizations. That is right. That is, they do defy the standard narrative, but lately. Uh, more and more uh, work in anthropology is turning up. There, are, there is a class of, uh, there's a group of scholars which uh, has complicated this narrative, and they are talking about, uh, you know, like the some of the early cities in some parts of the world did not quite have the hierarchy we assume, you know, and and there it was a much more complex process, an uneven process, and that neat picture from earlier times is probably no longer true. Um, so I'd like to move on to um, the next couple chapters, um, which deal with some of the Buddhist centers that arose in India. Um, obviously, one of the major historical shifts in India um, is the decline of Buddhism. Um, obviously, India is the source of the Buddhist religion, um, and it was a major religion in places like uh, Nagarjunakonda and, and Nalanda. Um, I guess, first of all, could you talk about both of these places, Nagarjunakonda and Nalanda, and then maybe talk about your thoughts as to what caused the decline of Buddhism in India. Yeah, uh, so Nagarjunakonda is uh, uh, was a third century 
CE city. It flourished for about 100 years. It was an offshoot of a larger empire, the Satvahana Empire. And the Nagarjuna Konda is really represents, uh, a, it was a major conduit for uh, Buddhism and Brahmanism into the South. So it's a, it's a, you know, like these Buddhism and Brahmanism arose in the North and the Nagarjuna Konda was the first major place, uh, you know, the southernmost place rather, where these two religions flourished and it became, uh, you know, they pushed it down further. And uh, there some remarkable things happened there. Um, and, you know, there's the famous philosopher Nagarjuna, who is the founder of Mahayana Buddhism, uh, who, who, who lived there. And, and Nalanda University, of course, uh, it comes, it begins around the 5th century, continues till the 12th, 13th centuries, uh, was a major monastery. So some people call it a university. Um, and, you know, it attracted student monks from all over Asia who came and studied. It was like for Buddhist studies, it was like the Harvard of the time uh, for, for hundreds of years. So, uh, you know, and we know a lot about it now from the Chinese visitors and who've left records. So now, uh, you know, what caused this decline of Buddhism in India is um, that this decline really happened in the second half of the first millennium. And by the seventh century, the Chinese visitor Zhuangzang had noticed the slide and he, he wrote about it. I, I think there were multiple reasons for this decline. I will quickly go through three or four of them. Uh, the first, I think there had been a competitive and hostile dynamic between Brahminism and Buddhism over both patronage and followers. And in this game, Buddhism at some point started losing out. And partly because Brahminism was more creative and, and, and embraced several popular features of Buddhism. It appropriated them, such as monastic orders, no animal sacrifices, and even took the Buddha as the ninth avatar of Vishnu. And then the uh, second reason is, you know, the Buddhist clergy got a little too complacent. Centuries of royal patronage reduced their dependence on lay people for funding. And so they retreated into these gated monasteries and, and, and they kind of cut off their contact with lay people. And the lay people returned the favor and they began shifting to rival religious orders. And a third reason is like there was a big churn in the Indian religious market and towards the end of the first millennium with the rise of you know, Brahminical orthodoxy led by uh, this major figure Adi Shankara and the rise of bhakti or mystical devotionalism and these were more compelling to a lot of people and this in this churn in this religious market uh, more satisfying products were coming up and buddhism was one of the losers um, you know some say because it was a relatively sober and austere faith and it couldn't really compete with what was what was coming up and then another fourth reason is probably that uh, I mean, it, it did happen that there were declining followers. The uh, kings of the period began shifting to 
a mostly Brahminical ideology. Earlier, they had divided their patronage between Brahminism and Buddhism. And this set in a vicious spiral for Buddhism. The funding for monasteries dried up and uh, you know, many kings even began persecuting Buddhist monks, like in the Sena dynasty in Bengal. Um, by the time of the Turkish invasions around 1200 CE, Buddhism had vanished from everywhere in India except for a few small pockets in eastern India. And it was already on life support, awaiting a final push which was delivered by the Turks. So the decline had many causes, though today you know, I should note that Hindu nationalists t- uh, tend to reduce them to just the Turkish invasion, which was, uh, if you look at it, was uh, actually a fairly minor cause. So you know, that roughly sums it up. So I'd like to jump forward to, um, to another one of the cities you discuss. Um, make sure I pronounce it correctly. Um, Kajuraho. Um, now, I think much of that chapter focuses on some of the... Um, some of the erotic imagery you see uh, in its temples, um, which was definitely an interesting chapter to read uh, while on the bus. Um, but you note that that this imagery is treated with some awkwardness, I think, by by Indians today. First of all, I think, kind of what, why did the people of uh, Kajuraho focus on um, eroticism and this erotic imagery? And how did that differ from elsewhere in India? I guess, why, why is this treated as somehow problematic today? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Most Indians are super awkward around this erotic imagery. Um, on, uh, on, this, on medieval temples like the ones in Khajurao, and it's actually, it wasn't just Khajurao, and it also happened in a few other parts of India, uh, several parts of India, and they rose and declined roughly together, uh, you know, plus minus a few, you know, uh, years. And uh, so it's, you can study, Kajarao stands for uh, all of them. And the Indians feel awkward mainly because this imagery comes from a very different religious culture that's now lost to us. So these depictions just seem alien and scandalous to modern Indians. And so what was going on? You know, what drove that imagery was a tantric religious substrate which thrived in the first millennium. In tantrism, which is now really a fringe thing in in eastern parts of um, uh, India, in tantrism, sex and spirituality were deeply intertwined pursuits. So sex, properly guided by tantric principles, was a path to spiritual progress and eventual liberation or moksha. And this was then a popular religious idea, and it stood in direct contrast to Hindu orthodoxy, which glorified austerity, renunciation, and asceticism as the path to God. And this, the Hindu orthodoxy and and even the Buddhist had a similar view of the path to, to God or, um, uh, or, or the, 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 their path, their spiritual path. Now, the roots of Tantra were really non-Vedic and non-Brahmanical, non-Buddhist. They arose from and were nurtured by a 
folk spirituality that valued symbols of fertility as auspicious. You know, at first, such symbols were basic and abstract and, and they appeared as decorative motifs on temple doorways. And then over centuries, these symbols grew more complex and realistic and they began evoking the idea of fertility through images of male-female unions. Over time, these images, at first, they were just coyly amorous pairs holding hands and so on, uh, like the ones we see in Nagarjuna Konda in the 3rd century CE. And they, then they moved on to more explicit, explicit sexual couplings. Now, across India, it was this tantric belief system embraced by some of the royalty, that inspired the erotic art on state-sponsored temples. And so in late first millennium, this substrate began fading in India due to, you know, the same sort of the religious churn that I just described and conflicts within the Hindu fold centuries before the rise of Islamic rule in Delhi. And it was the same churn that had pushed out Buddhism too. Um, I discussed this in the book, but from then on, Hinduism became more orthodox, hierarchical, patriarchal, and puritanical, leading to the down the road to the sexual prudes of today who are you know, greatly scandalized by this imagery and are unable to understand where it comes from. So much of this history is lost. Um, sometimes literally, you know, as you note, in, in the case of um, Nagarjunakonda, um, much of that site lies at the bottom of a lake after it was flooded due to the construction of a dam. How difficult was it for you to kind of build back the history of these places when writing the book? Yeah, it varied. Uh, I followed a similar process um, and there were some variations. So let's take Nagarjuna Konda as, as an example, which was particularly challenges, challenging because, as you just said, it, it now lies at the bottom of a lake, uh, which was created by a dam on the river Krishna. Now, luckily, a good deal of archaeological work had happened on it between 54 and 60 until the lake covered it. And some of the site's key monuments were uh, relocated to higher ground. So, of course, I visited all these monuments and I studied academic historians who have investigated the site and created a picture of that society. I studied the work of the philosopher Nagarjuna, who was a resident of the city in, in the third century. I also poured over two fat tomes that constitute the detailed archaeological reports I studied the plan of the city and the location of the city's excavated finds. And I then imagined what a walk down its main avenues might have felt like. What would one have seen back then? And so in the book, I, I take the reader on that imaginary walk, which is something I'm, I'm quite proud of, actually. I, I wish more history books would do that. And uh, the, the process with other sites was similar to um, uh, it was a combination of reading a diversity of academic histories, archaeological reports, visiting the sites and uh, associated museums, um, ancient travelers' records, 
you know, any surviving literary works from that period, even talking to present day locals at these sites to add some you know, color to the narrative. And, and my focus all along was to tell an engaging story about each place for the general reader, but one that was that had to be rooted in sound scholarship. That was important to me. So in between uh, in in between kind of these accounts of different cities, um, you intersperse these chapters with chapters about some of the foreign visitors who stopped by India during their travels, people like um, uh, Megasthenes and Zhuang Zheng and uh, Al Biruni and Marco Polo. Um, how reliable are these accounts and what do we learn from reading them? Well, yeah, the, the reliability varies a lot. Um, I mean, these travelers were human. Um, like any of us, they too had, they came with their cultural baggage, their blind spots, prejudices, they often didn't know local languages, so things sometimes got lost in translation. They were also, most of them were not scholarly people, except, say, Al-Biruni. Um, most of them had no role models either. And many of them exaggerated things to just spice things up for audiences back home. So it's challenging, and for the history writer... It's partly an art to decide what to trust. We need to look at other contemporary sources to assess whether an account makes sense. We also need to look for you know, internal, inner logic and consistency and the, and the vividness in each account to, to assess its trustworthiness. Um, in most cases, I, I actually offer a discussion on how to interpret a major traveler's uh, words, you know, based on what we know of his character and possible motivations and so on. Um, there is considerable variation here. For example, you know, Megast- let's take Megasthenes. He's not skeptical about, you know, hearsay uh, about places he has not visited. He just records them, He and many of it is just plainly absurd. But he is good with describing the city of Patliputra, where he spent uh, two, three years. Uh, it describes its social life, the Amorian bureaucracy, even little details like you know, how elephants were used by humans, how they were captured and trained and used in war and all that. And that's pretty accurate stuff. Uh, it's much easier to trust Alberuni, who who was an astute and insightful observer. Um, with um, someone like Marco Polo, it's easy to discount his obvious fabrications, um, but his social observations were often quite spot on. Like, you know, his he notes how Indians reserve their left hand for unclean tasks, or they do not use uh, their mouths on flasks and pour the fluid uh, by raising the flask above their mouth. So, like this is so well entrenched. Who would doubt that? It's just a you know interesting that this existed even back then. Uh, I think a fair bit of what we know about Indian history comes from the accounts of foreign travelers, and it's a it's an important pillar of what we know about the past. Um, 
along with you know the other sources of archaeology, literary and texts and inscriptions and so on. Uh, a good example here is of the Chinese travelers. Um, they left rich details of Indian social life between the 5th and the 7th centuries. So there were three of them whose records have survived. They describe a range of laws and punishments, taxation, festivals, customs, customs like the practice of untouchability in the 7th century, and so on. Um, And when Buddhism died in India after the 13th century, it disappeared entirely from memory. Indians even forgot that the Buddha was Indian and a founder of a major religion in the subcontinent. It was these Chinese monks' records translated in the 19th century um, that led to the rediscovery of our Buddhist antiquity. And it's from these Chinese monks uh, that we learn a lot about, you know, even uh, Nalanda. It's what was its admission criteria, what they studied, their debates, how the university was financed. You know, we learn about the uh, greeting protocols um, between student and teacher, their classroom settings, their walks, bathing routines, all kinds of fascinating stuff. It just makes it easier to imagine an average day in the life of a monk uh, at Nalanda. So these travelers' records are really quite invaluable when read with some caution and care. So I have one more question, and it's a big question, um, <laughs> which is, uh, why did you decide to embark on writing this, this um, quite broad and substantive work of history? Yeah, uh, I've been reading history for about 30 years and for nearly as long, um, I've been fascinated by cities that were entirely lost to memory and had to be dug out and their stories then built up from scratch. And I've visited dozens of such lost cities around the world. Um, In 2004, I took a break from my work in Silicon Valley and I traveled in India for two years pretty much nonstop visiting all the places I write about in this book, I remember being struck by questions for which answers were not easy to find, at least for me. You know, questions like, what was it like to live in the city of Dholavira in a, in a more, uh, in a very vivid sense? You know, what habits and ways of the Harappans are still with us today? What sort of urban milieu produced an amazing thinker like Nagarjuna. What was it like to be a student at Nalanda? You know, I didn't find um, easy answers to to, to these sorts of questions and what we just discussed. What religious worldview allowed the sort of erotica that we find on temples in Khajarao and why did it disappear? So uh, with questions like these, I began digging and I looked up academic histories and original sources and travelers' accounts, and one thing led to another. I began writing short pieces on some of these sites and travelers, and in time, I started connecting the dots into a you know, larger civilizational arc and learning about the most significant trends and transformations and fault lines of, of Indian civilization. And this happened over 15 years or so. You know, as I read, traveled, reflected on these places, 
I moved back to India and eventually a vision for this sort of a book emerged. Um, I pitched it to Penguin and they liked the idea very much. And, you know, the rest, um, as they say, is history. (laughs) So I think that's a great place to end our interview with Namit Arora, author of Indians, A Brief History of a Civilization. Namit, one actual last question for you. Um, Where can people find your work and what's next for you? Yeah, my uh, my I have three books. Uh, I think if you just search my name, Namit Arora, I have a website, namitarora.com. And through there, uh, you can find my essays and various um, uh, in various places and also all of my three books and how to acquire them um, around the world. And what's next? I am uh, currently just taking it slow and I'm just reading a lot. You know, when you are working on a, a big project like this book, a lot of other reading has to take a backseat. And I had built up like this big pile of books. So I'm just working through those. And uh, I might work on some uh, book reviews. Uh, and then uh, let's see what book length project appeals to me uh, next. I, I'm not settled on it um, at this point. Well, I look forward to hearing about what comes next. Um, so you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R. I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewOfBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Facebook or on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. You've subscribed to listening to the Asian Review Books podcast, now found on all your favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends who want to continue to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for interview with Larry Fain, author of The Flower Boat Girl. But before then, thank you so much, Namit, for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Nicholas. Enjoyed it.